welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. At present, we're looking at a mysterious servant. Now, what's happened is Israel, corporate Israel, God's servant has failed, and they have failed miserably. At the start of Isaiah, we saw the ideal Israel and the actual Israel, and they are so far apart, one wonders how they can ever be reconciled. So that's the first part of the book, coming through to Isaiah chapter 40, where these people are now in captivity because of their sinfulness, and God speaks a word of hope to them. He speaks a word about a new exodus, and and it starts in Isaiah chapter 40. Remember that operatic note of hope that is sung into the Shawshank Redemption compound, and, and everybody lifts up their heads to listen to the beautiful music, but what are they going to do with that? How are they going to respond to this note of hope? And from Isaiah chapter 40 through to chapter pretty much 55, we see, and the response is one of cynicism and unbelief. Basically, they say, well, if God is so powerful, how come we're in this situation? We're not even sure that he he loves us. And if he does love us, then he's definitely not powerful enough to do anything about the captivity we find ourselves in. So the spotlight really swings away through Isaiah 42, um, through Isaiah 53, to another servant. And we see a mysterious servant that Isaiah begins to speak of, not a corporate group, but an individual. One who will do God's bidding, he'll do God's will, he'll represent God's interests in the way that corporate Israel has not been able to do or has not been willing to do. And we've looked at the servant songs of Isaiah, the famous passages, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. We looked at Isaiah 53 at Easter time, so I'm not gonna revisit that. But what I want to do tonight, uh, this morning, is to look at the, f- the third song. It'll be the fourth one we're looking at, but it's the third song in the, in the sequence, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 50. Now, I have to acknowledge, and I've done so each week, that Isaianic scholars debate endlessly and grapple with who was Isaiah talking about when he wrote these passages, and I've just uh, skipped that debate and said we're not entering into it. I've basically cut to the quick and suggested that we are to see Jesus in these songs, that the New Testament writers applied Isaiah's songs to Jesus the Messiah, and I think a case could be made for saying that Jesus saw himself in those songs and that they furnished for Jesus much of his self-identity and sense of mission. Um, As we've looked at these songs, also I've suggested to you that Jesus is the prototypical servant, that he casts a pattern, if you like, or a shadow from whom all other servants uh, take their cues and seek to emulate. In the next portion of Isaiah that we'll very briefly look at next week, the spotlight shifts back again to the servants of God. And I'm suggesting that this servant casts a shadow, lays down a type for all of these servants. And, and you and I are part of, that, of, of those servants. Um, there's much in these songs that we can actually directly relate to as we seek to be God's faithful servants in our time. So that being said, um, Isaiah chapter 50, I'm going to read to you the third of the four songs. Now, the first three verses of Isaiah 50 actually are still dealing with Israel's failure. 
and uh, highlighted by the words where God says, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? So that's directed to corporate Israel. And then from verse 4 through verse 11, we have the words of the servant, the message to the servant. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Just in, in that one little verse, to know what to speak, uh, the tongue of the learned, to know when to speak in season, to know to whom to speak, the one that is weary, to know how to speak, how to speak a word in season. So an incredible, just an incredible thought of this one who is in the presence of the Lord and out of that presence he knows how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled, and this you shall have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. So Israel, as the corporate servant, has failed. They are blind and deaf and unresponsive. Isaiah 50 starts off saying, how come there was nobody? How come when I came there was no man? And there's this constant lament through both Isaiah and Ezekiel, actually, of God looking for somebody who would be his servant. So in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, for example, it says, So I sought for a man among them who would make up the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. So here's God looking for people and there's nobody there. Isaiah 51 verse 18, there's no one to guide her among all of the sons she's brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand. Isaiah 63 5, I looked, but there was none to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Isaiah 59 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Here's God looking among the many of Israel and finding absolutely none. No intercessor, no one who will stand in the gap. Actually, the Hebrew word for intercessor is the word pagah. It has the idea of somebody who makes up the gap or bridges the gap and, uh, and stands with God and for God as he's seeking to reach out to people. Israel refused to stand in the gap. They refused to be that intercessor. Finding no one among Israel's many to be the one who would stand in the gap, God brings forth his servant. And it's interesting that in Isaiah 53, verse 12, the fourth of the songs, it says, he was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Here was one who would be in the gap, the paga, 
It's the same word as, I looked for an intercessor, found none. So my servant became the one who made intercession and stood, up the, stood in the gap. And so Isaiah 50 has this very, very deliberate contrast between the behavior of the corporate servant Israel who have failed, the false servant, and the servant who will be true. Israel is unheeding. Verse 1 or verse 2 starts off, there's none to answer, but the servant is listening and responding and says, I was not rebellious, I did not turn away. Israel is unconvinced about God's love and concern. Isaiah 49, 14 says, in their, in their voice, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. That was their complaint. The servant is confident of God's help and he says, for the Lord God will help me. Israel suffers for her own iniquities. Verse one in this chapter says, you are sold for your own iniquities. The servant suffers for his obedience and for the iniquities of the people. Not for his own, but for theirs. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. Israel is charged with and is guilty of committing offenses. Nothing, no charge can be brought against the servant. And he says, he is near who justifies me, who will condemn me. So there's this incredible contrast set up between corporate Israel and this, this, this servant. So what I want to do this morning is just look a little bit more detail through the song. So verse 4 says then, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. This song is the most autobiographical of the four songs, and here we find Jesus speaking about his relationship with his father, and he says, he gives me the tongue of, of the learned. The, the Hebrew word learned is the word limud, and it's used three times in Isaiah here. It's used in chapter 8, verse 16, where it's actually describing Isaiah's disciples, and then it's used a bit later on in 54, 13, where it speaks about the possibility of our children being taught of the Lord. So the idea is uh, a person who learns and becomes a follower through being in intimate association with, with a teacher, with a master. According to the Hebrew scholar Jacinius, he says that the word lemud comes from an Arabic root that actually has the idea with, of developing a taste. Apparently, Arabic children in their early years, the parents get the taste of date on their fingers and rub it inside the child's mouth, getting them used to that taste. We, we, we speak uh, colloquially of developing a taste for something, and by that we mean we are coming to appreciate something that is perhaps unlikely to be appreciated by somebody who's had no substantial exposure to it. So uh, Bob Dylan's music and Marmite, they're acquired tastes. Okay, somebody, I mean, I, I love Bob Dylan. Karen says, I just can't cope with him. He's, I mean, his voice is just dreadful. And I'm talking, what are you talking about, dreadful? It's like somebody, you know, I remember being at Faith Bible College many, many years ago, and there was this Asian guy, and he'd heard about Marmite, and he'd decided to have some. Before anyone could get hold of him and school him in Marmite, he got a dessert spoon of it and put it in his mouth. It came out very quickly. It's an acquired taste. It, it, you, you, you work on it. Discipleship is an acquired skill. It's not an innate one. He learned this whole issue of discipleship. 
He gave me the tongue of the learned. I have the ear of the learned. But this is a developed school, uh, skill. Actually, Jeremiah in chapter 13 and verse 23 talks about people of his time who had become accustomed to doing evil. That's the same word, limu. They had developed a skill. Jesenius says they had become experts in evil. Uh, you, you know that you don't become an expert in any field without devotion and discipline, without practice on a daily basis. And Jeremiah says of the people of his day that they had given themselves to the practice of evil and the practice had made them perfect. Here in Isaiah, the servant has given himself to the practice of the presence of the Lord. Morning by morning, I come into the presence of the Lord and he trains my ear and gives me words to speak. Words in season to him that is weary and I know how to speak them because I've listened. This is autobiographical. This is Jesus' early years. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of material for those first 30 years. We call them the silent years. But there are little insights into the way that he developed. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The word increased is the Greek word prokopto, and it's the word that is used of a blacksmith as he's beating out a piece of metal and shaping it into some kind of instrument or some kind of weapon. You drive it forward by beating with an intentional plan. Jesus didn't just grow willy-nilly. There was a plan in the way that he lived his life. There was an intentionality about how he used his time. During these years, morning by morning, Jesus was committed to the process of being shaped by his Father. You know, when we read about Jesus' public ministry, it's stunning to see how wonderfully he is led by the Holy Spirit. And we marvel. You know, John chapter 8, verse 28, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak as the Father has taught me. And, and we just, you know, are amazed at how brilliantly he does that. People said, never, is a man, never a man has spoken like this man. We tend to imagine that this sometimes just dropped on him, perhaps at his baptism, but it didn't. It was an acquired skill. He increased at it. He became an expert at it, as it were, because he was a lemur. He was a disciple, just morning by morning. And he seemed to know what to say, to whom to say it, when to say it, and in what manner to say it. Whether it's the woman at the well or Zacchaeus up the tree, whether it's broken Peter or doubting Thomas, whatever the words were that were required in that situation, he came up with them. He never, ever broke a bruised reed and he never extinguished a smoking flax. He spoke like no man has ever spoke because he listened like no man has ever listened. He had a learned tongue because he had a listener's ear. You know, if we were some, by some miraculous means to be transported back and to be present with Jesus in one of those morning-by-morning morning sessions with the Father, I wonder what we might have observed. I suspect if many of us had to write and, and, and describe what we see, we would tend to think of Jesus in a pose of intense prayer, ears straining to hear that, hear that still small voice, you know, sort of yoga-like, you know, legs crossed, mm, waiting for that still small voice. I, I, don't, I don't think it was probably anything like that. I, I'm not suggesting 
that those morning by morning sessions wouldn't have included times of intense prayer and listening. But you know what? I suspect that much of that time was given to reading and pouring over the scriptures. It was in the context of being in the word that he heard a word. In the general, he heard a specific. In the logos, there was a rima. And the reality is, you know, words without the context of the word have a habit of getting really weird. I think you would have seen Jesus many times in those morning-by-morning sessions studying the scrolls, studying the scriptures. You say, well, Don, how do you know that? You're surmising, you're arguing from silence. Well, true, but I think it's a deduction that's a very reasonable one. On the basis that Jesus exudes scripture, he oozes scripture. During his public ministry, in the words that are recorded, at least 24 of the Old Testament books are quoted. Many of them, like Psalms and Isaiah, multiple times. Jesus knows these words. As a precocious 12-year-old, we find him baffling learned scholars with his knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures. Morning by morning, he was in them. Every time people or circumstances squeezed him, as it were, he bled Scripture. In temptation, he would say, it is written, and he quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. In debate, whether it's with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, you know not the Scriptures or the power of God, he says to the Sadducees. In agony and in rejection, he's quoting the Scriptures. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's from Psalm 22. Every time he's touched and squeezed, he exudes the Scriptures. Where did that come from? It didn't drop on him. It was prokopto. It was beaten into him morning by morning as he was shaped by the presence of the Father in the presence of, of God's Spirit. Now, let me make a jump here. Because I'm suggesting that this is the patterned servant, and we who are servants follow in his footsteps. And verse 4 actually is supposed to be true of you and I too. We're to have a learned tongue because we have a listening ear. That's why Jesus was to say to his disciples, what you hear in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach from the housetops. Now, I think it goes without saying that we perhaps haven't done this as well as we might. And I'm not just trying to condemn anybody particularly. I'm, I'm including myself in this with you. But I suspect that much of our hearing has been defective. And as a result of that, much of our speech has been insignificant. You know, those of you who perhaps have had any training in speech therapy or have been around speech therapists, you'll know that they'll tell you that in many cases, defective speech is related to hearing difficulties. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 31 through 37, we have Jesus healing a man who, it says, a deaf one hardly speaking. Now, the idea is that he wasn't deaf and dumb completely but rather that there was a hearing defect and it resulted in stammering speech. That's the way the translation goes. He had a hearing problem and it was translated into stammering speech. Interesting, Jesus takes the man out of the multitude. He gets him away from, from his normal situation. He touches the ears first and then the tongue. The order is significant. A listening ear precedes a learned tongue. And away from the white noise of his normal environment, Jesus heals him. You know what? I suspect the white noise of our environment is stealing from us 
our ability to hear our father's voice. In the 1980s, studies shows, uh, showed that the human ear was able to hear and distinguish about 300,000 distinct and different sounds. The same study done in the 21st century has reduced the amount of sounds that we're able to distinguish from 300,000 to 180,000. That's, cl that's close to a drop of 50%. And it seems that the proliferation of sound is stealing from us our ability to hear. You know, people don't do anything without sounds now, whether it's driving or walking. or We, we seem to be averse to silence of any kind. Perhaps for you and I, we need to be taken out of the multitude, away from the white noise of our environment, morning by morning, so that our ears can be calibrated to the one sound that we need to hear the most. And I think, like our prototype, we need to be in the Scriptures. We need to be the people of the Word. You know, I'm staggered uh, at the attitude of many so-called learned ones, so-called disciples, in their attitude to the Scriptures. Uh, the kindest word, I, I was trying to be kind, the kindest word I could think of in trying to describe it was inconsistent. I can think of other ones. But we are inconsistent. You know, more and more, I'm hearing people saying something like this. Well, you know, I like Jesus, and I believe in him, and I read the red letters. But some of that other stuff, I just can't go along with. I mean, truly, Moses is weird. Paul's a misogynist. You have to take some of those passages with a grain of salt. Look, I don't know whether it's occurred to you or not, but Jesus didn't have a red-letter Bible. Now, some of you are saying, I, I don't know what a red-letter Bible is. Well, a red-letter Bible is where the words of Jesus are put in red. And you get a lot of people say, oh, I read the red. But, but the other stuff I just, I can't go with. Jesus didn't have a red-letter Bible. He read the scriptures. He read Moses. He read the prophets. He immersed himself in the Psalms. It was all scripture to him, and he had High value. Not a jot or tittle will pass away. The scriptures will be fulfilled, he said. To say things like, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not so fussed on the other stuff, honestly, is to set yourself up as an arbitrator over the scriptures rather than letting the scriptures be the arbitrator over you. We are in the place of the judge. We judge them rather than they judging us. In effect, we're saying, Jesus, I like you, but I'm sorry. I know better than you about these other matters. You're a child of your age, and we've moved beyond you. Now, I, I, I dare say that not too many people would say that to Jesus' face. But it is our attitude toward the Scriptures. I mean, how can you really serve a God that you think you know more than? Why would you bother? Friends, Jesus is not a child of his age. He's a child of his father, and he disciplined himself and became accustomed to being in the Scriptures. He became an expert because morning by morning, he was in them. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not suggesting that there's some magical quality about the Scriptures. It's actually possible to know a lot about the Bible as a subject and yet completely miss the one that it's supposed to lead us to. That was the charge Jesus made to the Sadducees. He said, you study the Scriptures, but you won't come to me. You've missed the point. And it's not that I'm suggesting that we know the Bible as information, as facts to be memorized, but they are to lead us to a person. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he said, we come to the Scriptures. It's not a question of learning a subject, but steeping ourselves in a personality. 
And morning by morning, Jesus was in that place where in prayer, in, in the word, he, he listened. He allowed God to shape him. Verse five of the song says, the Lord God has opened my ears and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. When you read that, you think, is that just a nice way of saying what he's already just said? The Lord kind of opened my ears like the tongue of the learned, you know, and, and so on. Or is, it, or is that saying something more? Is there something beyond the fact that I listened? Well, many scholars maintain this is more than simply a repetition of the previous thought. The, the literal Hebrew says, the Lord God has dug my ears. And many see this as a reference to a ceremony that took place and is described in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, when a servant had lived with the master that he loved dearly. And when the time for that servant's release came, he decided, I love my master. I love what I'm doing. My wife, my children are here. I don't want to do anything else. I want to serve my master. He would then make that wish known and the master would take him some, some translations say to the judges, some, the, the Hebrew word is Elohim, so we're not sure whether it's a human authority or actually whether he's taking them before the Lord. And he put his ear up against the doorpost and dug his ear with an awl. He put a hole in the servant's ear. Psalm 40 actually refers to this. Psalm 40 verse 6, it says, My ears you have opened. My ears you have dug. Those words, by the way, are taken by the writer of the Hebrews and used to describe Jesus. He is a servant who is willingly serving his master and has his ears dug through as a sign of his loyalty, as a sign of his commitment, as a sign of his obedience. This, this servant is loyal, obedient, trustworthy. He represents the master's interests well and you and I are called to be servants after that pattern. Verse five in the song goes on. I was not rebellious, neither did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I didn't hide my face from shame and spitting. Listening to and obeying God's words as a servant will always put you on a collision course with the world. I think it was John Calvin who once said, whoever faithfully administers the word will be exposed to a contest with the world. And... Um, as you move through the servant songs, you see the idea of suffering and rejection beginning to increase. It's not mentioned in the first. In the second, it's mentioned. In the third, it develops, which is what we're looking at. It comes to its climax in the fourth song, which is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Verse 7 to 9 goes on and says, though, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who vindicates me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment and the moth will eat them up. This servant sets his face like a flint do his master's will. And there are obvious echoes with that in Jesus's life. Remember in Luke 9, 51, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint to represent his father. By the way, this passage, those verses that I just read to you are probably the background of Paul's wonderful passage in Isaiah, in Romans chapter eight, you know, where, where he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies or vindicates me. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Now you can hear the Isianic echoes in Paul, the intercessor, the, the one who will vindicate me, who can lay a charge. We love those verses. You know, even Paul doesn't just pluck those out of the ether. Paul is one whose life has been shaped morning by morning. Paul is a student of the scriptures. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he brings them up. This, this servant is confident that God will vindicate him. He says, I will be vindicated. It's, that, that word vindication is a forensic term, and it means that God will bring a verdict of innocence on his behalf. You know, that final vindication for the servant awaits the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, some say Paul is quoting here from a hymn that it was common in the early church, and he says, great indeed, uh, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Now this servant says, I know that I will be vindicated by the Master. A long time goes by, but that vindication takes place as the servant is vindicated by the Holy Spirit, first in the mighty works that he did, and then secondly and supremely by resurrecting him from the dead. He was acquitted through resurrection and declared to be God's servant. That's what Romans 4 is about. Sorry, Romans 1, chapter 4, where Paul says, and he's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is the final vindication of the servant. Who is gonna charge him with evil? Nobody. So verse 10 and 11 of our song goes on. And then the prophet turns his focus slightly from the servant to the rest of the servants who are following the servant. And he says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the light of the torches that you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. As I say, the spotlight now moves to you and I to those who commit themselves to that servant way. And committing themselves to that servant way, they will most likely have a servant experience. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 10. He said, a disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his master. It's, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and, if, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of the household? So we embrace the servant way, we will more than likely have a servant experience. And I want to just say to you, darkness and difficulty are normative, not exceptional. It's normative for the servants of God to go through very difficult times. It's normative for us because it was true of him. Hard times aren't necessarily a sign that there's something wrong with you. Now, I know that there are times when we do things and we reap the consequences of what we do, but I think in Pentecostal circles at least, we've come up with this idea that if we walk with God, all will be well. Well, I want to tell you that's an urban myth. All may not be well. 
at least not this side of eternity. Bob Mumford used to joke years ago that the initial evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit was not speaking in tongues, it was trouble. And there's a degree of truth to that. We will find ourselves in seasons of darkness. And when we're in the midst of these seasons, the prophet says, trust in and rely on God. Now remember, this is what Isaiah has been talking about all the way through. You can go right back to chapter 7. Ahaz is in great difficulties. Who is he going to trust in and rely on? And he takes a dramatic turn that basically is the downward spiral of the Davidic household because he says, well, we can't trust in God. God. God helps those who help themselves. Let's go to Assyria. And he makes some kind of political alliance with Assyria that is disastrous. In the difficulty that he faces, he doesn't rely on God. He lights his own fire. In Isaiah chapter 30, they're facing exactly the same situation. They're sending delegations to Egypt. And the prophet is saying, don't go down to Egypt. Rely on God. Trust him in the situation that you find yourself. Hezekiah is tempted to throw his lot in with Babylon against Assyria, who is now attacking him. Remember, Ahaz relied on Assyria, and now his grandson is facing the full might of that decision. And how many children have to face the full might of a decision that is made by their father or their grandfather in terms of how they set their lives, how they posture their lives. And here's Hezekiah. What will I do in the midst of the difficulties I face? Thank God this man actually made a good decision. He relied on God and God delivered him. But what about you and me? It's easy to read those stories and just kind of they go clean over our heads. We face our own circumstances of challenge and trial. What are you going to do? Extract yourself? That's what a lot of people do. Remember last week I talked about God creating an arrow. And an arrow in those days was created out of crooked timber. And how God straightened them was he pegged them so that the arrow was laid out and pegs were put on each side of the arrow and it was left in this frame until the crooked timber became straight. Well, we don't like being pegged down. Don't fence me in, the old song says. I want to be free. I don't like seasons of restriction and darkness. And so we extract ourselves and we never get straightened out. And as I said last week, you know what? God is relentless. He loves you enough. If you unfix the fix that he fixed to fix you, then he will fix another fix to fix you. He loves you enough. So what do you do in the midst of the difficulty? Well, he says, trust in and rely on God. Don't light your own flame, because if you do that, you'll lie down in torment. Well, that's all very well done, but how do you trust and how do you rely? Well, there's something in the morning by morning posturing of your soul that says, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. This is dark and this is difficult, but I'm not going to take a shortcut that I know to be wrong simply to lessen the pain. Straighten me out, do what you need to do, help me get through, but I'm trusting in you. And I want to tell you there's a verse in Isaiah 25, and I'll close with this. It says, it will be said on that day. Remember at the start of this series, I said, wherever you find it will be said on that day. And Isaiah does this all the time. He's looking forward prophetically to something that will come. And he's saying, there will be a day. And on that day, it will be said, behold, this is our God. 
We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation because he's come through. He comes through on that day. Now, you say, Don, when will that day be? I haven't got a clue. I don't know when it'll be for you. There are times that I can look back and say, you know, there was a day when God came through. And, I, and I, this is our God. This is the one who's faithful and true and righteous. And when he promises, he delivers. The great test of faith that Israel were engaged in and failed was that God gave them prophetic words and they met them with cynicism and unbelief, and that great operatic note of hope is sung into their compound, and they listened for a while, and then they turned and went on with their sweeping. God is saying, wait for me. Listen, I'm the one who will bring deliverance. Trust me. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.